So for the past few weeks, we've been, we've been talking about the character of God. On Father's Day in particular, we looked at the attributes that make him a good father. And last week, we kind of zoomed out a little bit and took a macro look at his omniscience and omnipresent and, and omnipotent nature. And, and as I say, he is all-knowing, all-powerful, and, and ever-present. And there are questions about God that we all seem to have anytime we consider God's power. And, and one of these questions is, if God is sovereign, do my prayers matter? Maybe you haven't wondered this in these words, but you maybe said, do my prayer cause God to change his mind? Do prayers work? Now, whether during a time of need, a, a moment of deep reflection, or even a moment of doubt, we've, we've all wondered this. And today is July 4th. It's Independence Day. And it's a day we celebrate the birth of this nation, the efforts of this nation's founders, and those who fought for it. And this is one particular day when we acknowledge and celebrate our freedoms as citizens of the United States of America. Our nation's founders signed the Declaration of Independence, and the people of this fledgling territory fought to establish it as a sovereign nation. And this will serve as an example as we seek to answer our theological question from Scripture. Now, we acknowledge God's sovereign power. And the psalmist writes this in Psalm 115.3. It says, our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. Now, this is one of the, the perks of being all-powerful. You can do whatever you want. And the prophet Jeremiah records his own words. He says, ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Repeatedly, the scripture identifies God as sovereign. Most notably, you find it in Ezekiel where he is identified as sovereign Lord 210 times. Now, God himself echoes his truth and he reveals his nature to Isaiah. He says, remember the former things, those of long ago. He says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do what I please. Now, statements like, I will do as I please, I'll do what I want, they, when it's our child, would get a little concerned, right? Because we don't trust their judgment. But when God says, I am God, I am all-powerful, I will do as I please, that should not concern us. In fact, God's power, based on his holy nature, nature gives us comfort. We know that all who come to salvation do so through God's enabling grace. And we're familiar with these words from Ephesians 2, 8, 10. It says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, the all-powerful God that forgive whatever it is you've done. He says, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, we know this verse. We say it a lot. We take comfort from it. But have you ever picked up on the reference to a little bit of predestination? Works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Proverbs 19 and 21 reveals, it says, Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. And the Apostle Paul makes statements such as, God works all things according to the purpose of his will. And this may further the belief that every single event that occurs is in some sense predestined by God. But at the same time, Paul emphasizes the importance of our responsibility. Paul wrote many letters to the early Christians throughout the region that provided guidance and teaching and, and when necessary, scolding. These letters become the majority of what we call the New Testament of the Bible. 
And it is in these books of the Bible that Paul advises doctrines of grace and peace and salvation. And he provides instructions for the church. And that is us to walk in a manner worthy of Jesus Christ. These letters became majority of what we call the New Testament, as I said. And, and it is in these books um, that we find 1 Timothy in particular, where Paul provides a guide to godliness and sound teaching. Now, God uses our human ways to fulfill what he has ordained. Now, I've heard this described a couple of different ways. One pictured it as a ship, and this is probably more of a Sunday school lesson, right? You're on a ship, and the ship has a captain, and within the confines of the ship, you can go wherever you want, you can do what you want, there's all kinds of activities, but you can't change the course or destination of the ship. The ship is going where it's going, someone's at the helm, and, and that's where you're going in the big picture. But another description I once heard, and this one sticks with me a little better, is that there are two levels of the stories of our lives. The upper story is this greater long-term plan, right? From the moment of your birth until the end of time, you are on a pathway towards salvation. That is the plan for your life. God wants to know you, have a relationship with you. He wants you to be more and more like him as modeled through his son, Jesus Christ. That is the upper story of your life. And you notice I said it ends at the end of time. It doesn't end when your time passes on earth or you hit a benchmark here. Okay, this is an ongoing thing. And that is because God wants that for you. God wants your salvation. He wants your relationship. He wants an eternity with you in heaven, even more than you want that. But along this pathway, you grow and mature and you develop the fruits of the Spirit and skills that He has equipped you with. And this is supported by the best known scripture, John 3 16, 17, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is the story. This is the plan. And he says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And that's echoed in First Thessalonians 5.9. I'm going to edit that out. First Thessalonians 5.9. For God has not destined us for wrath, right? Despite our sinful nature and the things we don't quite get right, he didn't destine us for destruction. He says, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is that upper story. This is the big picture. But the lower story is kind of where we operate. This is, this is us moving around on that ship. The things we choose to do occur down here in this area. All the while, God's orchestrating the big picture, right? He's moving the pieces around, opening and closing doors, firming up the steps that fall within his will as we live in parallel with his upper story. As long as we're going the same direction towards salvation and we're kind of moving along this, we have good days, bad days, God is there, you know, it says, supporting our footsteps, right? Putting the stones in front of our feet. But how does all this work together I mean, we don't, can't understand it necessarily because it's a divine mystery of how all this stuff works. We just know it does, and that's where faith and hope comes in. But as we pay attention, we can see God moving and working in our lives. And if we pay attention, we can see God moving and working in the lives of those around us. Now, because of God's sovereignty, we can take courage and comfort in knowing that despite the tragedies and evils we may face, evil will not triumph over God's good plans. And God's good plans for you will be fulfilled. And this is the meaning behind Roman H28, which says, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Remember, we, we twist this sometimes. All things are good. No, 
No, there's evil in the world. There's bad things that happen. But he says, in all things, in all these things, good or bad, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called. And that is you. Now, last week, as we looked at this macro nature of God's character, we were reminded that God does not change. We read verses such as Malachi 3, 6, where God in his own words said, For I, the Lord, do not change. And James 1, 17, For every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. And then what about this verse from Old Testament? This is, this is the story of Moses, Numbers 23, 19. It says, God is not man that he should lie. Or son of man that he should not change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? We have an unchanging God who is firm in his plan for us. So how do we reconcile our prayers, right? Our, our personal request with this unchanging predestined nature of God. How does that work? Well, very early on because of our sinful nature, God was troubled. God is troubled. In Genesis 6, 6, so we're back at the very beginning of the story of us. This tells us that the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on earth and his heart was deeply troubled. Genesis 6, 6, you know, he saw the evil of the world and he said, he said, I, I regret it. That's the translation. But you need to remember the Bible is written in three languages and none of which are English. So there are times that some of the translation leads to a little different meaning than what's intended. The Hebrew word for regret used in this context is nakam, N-A-C-H-A-M, nakam. And while this word can be translated as regret, it also means to feel sorry, to have compassion, or to be comforted, okay? There's even a minor prophet who was given the name nakam because he was a comforter. So if you read Genesis 6-6 and you say, God was comforted, not regret, because God does not regret creating humankind, but rather feel sorry that, that they, we, have fallen into sin. And this isn't the first time or the last time it's happened. You know, God sent Jonah to Nineveh. We know the story of, of Jonah going to Nineveh. There's a story of an upper story, lower story. Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. God moved some pieces around and he, he got Jonah to Nineveh. But he sent him to Nineveh to tell the people to repent or he will destroy their city. And, and they repented, and, and God does not destroy the city. Scripture uses the word knock'em here again. This is not to say that God regretted his decision to destroy them or that he even changed his mind, but rather that he was comforted by the repentance and had compassion on them. This is the same way he feels towards us when we stop and we repent. And he stops and he, he takes compassion on us. 1 Samuel fifteen twenty nine says, And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. So if God already had a plan, has already made up his mind, why should we pray? The Bible instructs us very clearly to pray without ceasing in faith and in Jesus' name. And it also says we should pray with the right motives depending on God alone and choosing to obey him. But ultimately, Scripture instructs us to pray in God's will from 1 John 5, 14 to 15. It says, and this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, okay, there's the disclaimer, anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. When we're praying for healing for the sick, 
That is within God's will. When we are praying for peace in the nation, when we are praying for or, or, or saying things like, we are so happy that this joy came, that, that so-and-so got to spend time with family. Okay, That's in God's will. God wants us to enjoy things. He wants peace and unity. He wants healing. He wants us to have compassion for others. That's praying in God's will. Now, prayer may not change God's mind, but it does change our hearts. And, and I've told you this before. Why do I need to pray if God knows what I want? And if God knows what's in my head, and a lot of it is, has more to do with us. Prayer is definitely how we communicate with God. Through prayer, God reveals his character to us. As we, we speak to him and we listen, he reveals some of his character. As he softens our hearts when it needs softening. As he, as he gives us nudgings to do things that he calls us to do. He's revealing his character. And we learn that he loves us and wants what is best for us. He knows our needs and wants and already has a plan to fulfill them. Okay? He cares for us. And everything that you need, not everything that's so you want, everything you need, he promises to fulfill, to take care of. And when we listen, he imparts wisdom. And he speaks truth to us. And little by little, he's transforming you and your heart closer and closer to his will. Prayer does change things. God is omniscient and he's, and he's sovereign. His, his mind does not change. But God does use prayer as a part of carrying out his will. He uses it to change us and he uses it to draw our attention to his particular, to his participation and circumstances. Prayer is mysterious in many ways, but is a privilege gifted to us by God through the, the person and work of Jesus Christ. So we can communicate directly with God the Father. Consider Jesus' prayer at the Garden of Gethsemane, okay? The night he was betrayed. It was revealed to him who he was and what was going to happen, and he knew it. He knew he was going to suffer a horrible, torturous death. And what did he say? Lord, take this from me, right? That's the humanity of Jesus Christ. But then he did the thing that we were supposed to do. This is the lesson. He says, but your will, not my will, be done. Now, was he going to change God's mind? God had an ordained plan for the life and death of his son, Jesus Christ. And that was to save us, right? But as this is revealed through the prayer, it was revealed the plan, right? The prayer was a part of the upper story. When we pray for things and it's revealed to us what it is that we may need to learn from that situation. As we're praying for something, and we may go, maybe that's not the right way to pray, and we're growing in our faith. Now, in God's sovereignty, he's granted a certain amount of autonomy, right, to us. This gift of free will, and in the Galatians 5, talks all about freedom. And this free will allows humanity to act in ways that are contrary to how God might wish us to act. It is not that God is powerless to stop us, but rather he has granted us permission to act as we do. Yet even though we might act contrary to God's will, his purpose in creation will be accomplished. Right? There's nothing we can do that will thwart God's purposes. Now we may mess with his timing. The worst thing that would probably happen is we get in our own way of some of the blessings God has intended for us. If we aren't giving him credit, if we aren't acting on his behalf, if we aren't doing as he's asked us to do, that blessing he has intended may be delayed. But don't think for a second that God isn't still in control. 
God's sovereignty includes a permissive element. And in God's sovereignty, he allows us to make these free choices. And if this weren't true, then we would be saying that God is ultimately responsible for our disobedience, right? If we don't say that God has given us free will, that means God is controlling us into sinful nature. And that is simply not true. That is contrary to God's nature and his purpose for our life. So God is sovereign and is the source of, of our moral code. And we, as a subject, follow or, or we disobey. For obedience, there is reward, blessings, and eternity in heaven. For disobedience, there is punishment, right? A broken relationship with our Father. But his willingness to allow us to disobey does not take away from his sovereignty. Now, to tie this back in, into the story of our sovereign nation, the 4th of July, the, the government elected by the people sets the law. It judges and enforces these laws. Within the confines of structure, we are a free nation. There are times that this may not feel like freedom, especially if we disagree with the leaders or the laws, but it's still more freedom than a vast majority of the world gets to experience. And here's the best thing about this great na- nation. No matter, no matter, or like, is, sorry, you matter in this nation's future. You have the power to vote, influence, and even lead change. And from the headlines, it may seem like we're rebelling against our own nation. From the Bible, it may seem like humanity is rebelling against God. But the larger story is his working to bring redemption to us. Nowhere is God pictured in the Bible as less than sovereign. Through the God in which we trust, we have achieved independence and freedom from condemnation for our sins. We can celebrate the victory won over death and in sin itself as we reflect on the sacrifices of the one who declared our freedom. Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. We have victory in Jesus, our Redeemer, and our Overcomer. We simply need to claim him as our Redeemer and the victory is ours to be shared with him. Have you invited him in your life? Will you invite him in your life? Will you invite him to make a change in your home in your community, in the world. July 4th, let's pray for our nation. Let's pray for us. Let's pray. Father God, who you are amazes us. And we don't understand the way that you work in our lives, but we see it and we know that you do. Lord, we know that you are in absolute control and we thank you for that. And that brings us peace and comfort. But when it's our own sinful nature or the sinful nature of those around us that that cause us to pause and wonder, God, are you really there? Father, help us to seek peace in knowing that our disobedience breaks your heart. As we seek repentance, as we seek to your forgiveness as we seek to forgive others. We thank you for that amazing, amazing grace that brings us back within your will. We thank you for the sacrifice of your son. We thank you for the sacrifice of all those who serve to give us freedom in this nation so that we can gather here on a Sunday morning or anytime we want and shout praises to you, to pray out loud, to say things like, in God we trust, one nation under God. Father God, that's our request and our prayer. You bring unity and peace. Lord, may we 
in our homes, in our houses, in our hearts, live according to your will. And let's make a change in this world with our obedience. Amen. I want to share something, and I'm, I'm not a huge Facebook person. In fact, I'm not even on Facebook. But every now and then, Sherry will send me something. And um, it's actually a coworker of mine, but a girl that, that Sherry had gone to high school with. Is that correct? And she had posted something. And before we get into, in, into um, the tradition, which is communion, I wanted to read this thing because it really, it really speaks. And it's called Church is Hard. Okay? And Sherry's got a copy. She'll, she'll give everyone a copy here in a minute. But it says... Church is hard for the person walking through the doors afraid of judgment. Church is hard for the pastor's family under the microscope of an entire body. Church is hard for the prodigal son returning home broken and battered by the world. Church is hard for the girl who looks like she has it all together but doesn't. Church is hard for the couple who fought the entire ride to service. Church is hard for the single mom surrounded by couples holding hands and seemingly perfect families. Church is hard for the widow and the widower with no invitation of lunch after service. Church is hard for the elder with an estranged child. Church is hard for the person singing worship songs overwhelmed by the weight of the lyrics. Church is hard for the man insecure in his role as a leader. Church is hard for the wife who longs to be led by a righteous man. Church is hard for the nursery volunteer who desperately longs for a baby to love. Church is hard for the single woman and single man praying God brings them a mate. Church is hard for the teenage girl wearing a scarlet letter ashamed of her mistakes. Church is hard for the sinners. Church is hard for me. It's hard because on the outside it all looks shiny and perfect. Sunday best and behavior and dress. However, underneath those layers you find a body of imperfect people, carnal soul, selfish motives. But here's the beauty of church. Church isn't a building, a mentality, or an expectation. Church is a body. Church is a group of sinners saved by grace, living in fellowship as saints. Church is a body of believers bound as brothers and sisters by an eternal love. Church is a holy ground where sinners stand as equals before the throne of God. Church is a refuge for broken hearts and a training ground for mighty warriors. Church is a converging of confrontation and invitation where sin is confronted and hearts are invited to seek restoration, church is a lesson in faith and trust. Church is a bearer of burdens and a giver of hope. Church is a family. A family coming together, setting aside differences, forgetting past mistakes, rejoicing in the smallest victories. Church, the body and the circle of sinner turned saints is where he resides, and if we ask, he is faithful to come. So even on the hardest days at church, The days when I'm at odds with a friend, when I've fought with my spouse because we're late once again, when I've walked in bearing burdens heavier than my feet can handle, yet masking the pains with a smile on my face, when I've worn a scarlet letter under the microscope, when I've longed for a baby to hold or fought tears as the lyrics were sung, when I've walked back in afraid and broken after walking away, I'll remember he has never, ever failed to meet me here. Friends, this is the God we have. This is the Savior that sacrificed himself And it was on the night that he was betrayed that he took a loaf of bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. And he took wine and after giving thanks, he said, this is my blood. He said, this is the blood of the new covenant. Jesus did not come to abolish the old 
but to create anew. It is through this new covenant that we have a hope and a peace. Now, the world and the government may not, government and this nation may not feel warm and welcoming, inviting to you. Church at times may not feel warm and welcoming, inviting. Maybe for any of those reasons we said, right? It's hard. And we are so trained to leave our baggage at the door as we get into a, a relationship or a marriage or we start our day at work or whatever it is, a bad day at work and we go home, you're supposed to leave the baggage at the door. Church is the one place that you absolutely must bring your baggage because this is where you leave it. And we're blessed that we get to celebrate a Holy Communion where we get to pause from all of this stuff and we get to symbolically ask for Jesus' forgiveness and commune with him, right? To have community with the Holy Spirit and get that warm comfort that says, child, I love you, you are forgiven. Would you pass up communion as we take it together? All right. Let's have a moment of prayer. Father God, you sent your son to serve a divine purpose, a purpose that he himself at one point prayed for change. But God, your will be done. Father, as we take this bread and drink this juice, we ask for your same grace, protection, and guidance in our lives. And we give this time to you. Amen.